Well, good morning, church. I'd invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 1. And as you are turning there, I'd like for you all to think for a moment about a time in your past uh, when you had a job that you were not good at. Now, there's probably some of you annoying people out there that are just good at everything you do, all right? So we'll acknowledge that. But for most of us, if you're like me, uh, you've had, you know, one or two jobs that you just weren't very good at growing up, right? Or, or maybe it was a job that you, you weren't qualified for and you got thrown into it and somehow had to kind of like learn as, as you went into it. Or, uh, or maybe it was a job you had been in for a while and you just simply did not have the capability or giftedness to carry it out well at all. Uh, for me, one of those jobs was in college was uh, refereeing in intramural basketball league. Uh, I figured, you know, hey, I like basketball. This will be, you know, a quick, easy six bucks uh, to make at, after dinner before I go study the rest of the night, right? Totally worth it. And let me tell you, I did not have what it takes to be a referee. Uh, it was awful, okay? Awful because in order to be a good referee, you really need to be a decisive person. And, uh, and that's something the Lord's been helping me grow in uh, through adult years. And as I've, I've stepped into leadership roles, this is something that does need to be developed. And I've, by the grace of God, learned to be a bit more decisive. But, but at that time, I am just not naturally a decisive person. Uh, I am, however, I am, however, one who is really good at seeing both sides of an argument. Right? I can, I, I can sympathize with other people's perspectives. Which, listen, that, that is a good thing to have in a lot of jobs, but not necessarily as a referee, right? The ball would go out of bounds, and I'd blow the whistle, and then just a wrestling match is going on in my head, right? Like, I mean, it did go off that person's hand, so I know it should be the other team's ball. But on the other hand, you know, I can see maybe they got fouled. The other team pushed them into the ball, so maybe it should be a foul. Yeah, that's what it should be. But... But, you know, actually the person who it went out on, they, they've probably been in the key longer than three seconds, so this should really be a three-second violation. I could really see all perspectives, and uh, before you know it, everyone is very upset with me. Uh, it's a, hey man, it's a running clock where the game's almost over, like make a decision, right? I quickly realized that was a job I was not good at at all. And, uh, and I, imagine, I imagine some of you have maybe had some interesting jobs like that, jobs that were just complete flops for you. Maybe that would be a good thing to share with your city group sometime this month uh, to get to know one another a little bit more. The reason that I, I share that uh, is because what we see in Romans 1 is that human beings, through trying to remove God from the equation of life, have gotten themselves into a job that we are not good at or qualified for. And this is, it's a little bit of a weightier subject today, as you probably picked up on from the scripture reading and even our last time preaching through Romans. And, and that's okay, life is weighty and, and the, the weightiness of the glory of Christ can handle it all. But you see, when we reject worshiping and serving God, we do so because we ultimately want his job. 
This is why we reject worshiping and serving God. It's because we want his, his job. Uh, it, it's been said by others, you know, what's the, what's the main difference between you and God? Well, the main difference is God doesn't wake up sometimes thinking he's you. Like that, that doesn't happen, right? But it sometimes happens to us. We wake up and we want to be God. And what we learn in Romans 1 is that when creation rejects its creator and tries to take his job, what inevitably happens is life spirals into darkness and depravity. And so here's the equation that we see play out this morning. If someone was to ask me, hey, what would be a math equation for the passage this morning? No one has asked me that, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, all right? Uh, so the equation would be creation, all right? We'll have this up on the screen. Creation minus its creator equals darkness. Creation minus its creator equals darkness. These verses paint a very grim picture of what it looks like when God is removed from the equation of life. And we're picking up this morning in, in Romans 1 verse 24, but before we get to 24, we have to understand where we are at in Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. Uh, you'll remember in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul has just proclaimed the glory and the power of the gospel, that it is through the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. It is through the gospel that, it is, that the righteousness is received by faith. He then, in verse 18, though, starts into a condemnation of all people. And he's focusing in on the Gentiles right now, and he's going to shift focus to those with a more Jewish and religious background in chapter 2. And we'll see this prosecution, this condemnation of all people. It continues through chapter 3, verse 20, where he then again takes us back to the gospel and reminds us that it is only by grace through faith in Christ that we can be forgiven of our unrighteousness and receive the righteousness of God. And so that's where, we're, that's where we're at. We're in the midst of this condemnation of all people. And I, we have to understand where we are at in light of Paul's overall uh, argument because we are going to read about some very specific sins this morning. And the temptation, and I think the easy thing for, for Christians, is to read about some of these specific sins and for us to only think about those other people. But Paul is not just condemning those other people. He's in the midst of condemning all people. And he, and he goes into a rather long list of sins this morning, uh, but none of these sins are actually the sin that needs to be addressed. All these sins that he lists this morning are really the fallout or the result of creation rejecting its creator. Right? These are things that happen when we try to take God out of the equation because we think we want his job. And so let's, we've got to start with some prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father God, this is your word. And Lord, I, I ask that you would help me Preach your word faithfully. 
that as I proclaim your word, Lord, that, that I would be full of truth as well as full of grace. And Lord, I ask that whatever past baggage or assumptions or even misconceptions or things that we carry in with us, Lord, I ask that we could drop all those things at your feet and that your truth would go forth and it would transform us that we would see, even in, Lord, your wrath, just how gracious and loving you are to us. So God, may your, may your truth go forth. Uh, guard, guard against me um, saying anything that would just be of me or my ideas, Lord. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 1, verse 24. Paul has just talked about how even through, though through general revelation, right, the power and glory of our Creator has been seen by all people through what has been made. Even because of that, though, creation, humanity, we have suppressed the truth. We have chosen idolatry. We have tried to remove God from the equation, and therefore God's wrath is revealed. And his wrath, we learned a couple of weeks ago, is his settled opposition to, his displeasure with, and his righteous anger against sin. And it is both a future and a present reality. His, his future wrath is being stored up for a day of wrath that is to come in the future. However, his present wrath is being revealed right now through him giving over people, giving, or giving people over, rather, to what they sinfully desire. And we see this continue to play out here in verse 24 as God's wrath is presently being revealed. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That word lust, there's over-desires. He gave them up to these over-desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul here is in the midst of condemning all people. And as he's in the midst of that, he does call out the sexual sin of practicing homosexuality. However, he starts by really calling out all types of sexual sins. Right When Paul says that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of the, their bodies. This is, he's getting at all sorts and types of sexual sins, things that are not the way that God designed and defined for these things to be carried out. You see, when we reject the Creator's design and definition for things and think that we are qualified to do His job, what we see God oftentimes do is in His wrath, He gives us over 
to all sorts of sinful desires that in fact do not provide us the freedom and lasting pleasure we thought they would, but instead we spiral into darkness and we fall into more slavery to these desires. Our Creator's design for for sexual activity is for it to be experienced between one male and one female in the covenant of marriage. And we see this in Genesis 2.24, there at the very beginning, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now I realize for many in our society, and maybe even for some of us in here, what I, I just said could be a very hurtful an offensive statement. And some Christians, listen, have grabbed hold of these verses and they've condemned the world around them, wagging a prideful, hateful finger at them with this, this posture of, of pride. And, and may that not be the case here this morning. Right? May, may we not think of categories of sin and, and not remember names of people that we dearly love that are in these. Now, I do believe that this is the the true and the right biblical definition of marriage. I know some would disagree with me. I I believe this is the true and right definition of, of marriage we see taught to us in the Scriptures. But as we communicate these things, I want us to be full of grace as well as being full of truth. I want us to remove the log out of our own eye before we try to remove the speck in others. And so it might be helpful for you, as it was for me reading this, uh, that you skip down a little bit to Romans chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul's going to shift his, his focus a little bit on then kind of the, the, the Christians that grew up Jewish. They grew up religious. They grew up going to synagogue every Sabbath, right? He's going to say, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. By the time we get to the, the, the end of this list, right, there's like 21 different sins that Paul's going to list. By the time we get to the end of this, listen, you'll be able to say that you have practiced the very same things. And even as we think about God giving us up to the the lust of our hearts to impurity, I I believe it is an accurate thing to say that as a result of living as ones who at one time or another have rejected God and as ones who have lived amongst a people that have rejected God, all of us, all of us have experienced some aspect of sexual brokenness in our world. Sexual sin has been committed by us. Sexual sin has been committed against us. And this is why the gospel is so necessary, church. It's so necessary. For it is being unashamed of the gospel that will free us from the shame of our past sexual sin. 
It is being unashamed of the gospel that will free us to confess and turn from our present sexual sin that exists amongst us right now. It is being unashamed of the gospel that will heal us from the wounds that sexual sin committed against us have caused. And it is being unashamed of the gospel that will free others from being slaves to their sexual desires. The gospel is so necessary, church. It it must be shared and it must be believed. We must believe it. We must be a church that is unashamed of the gospel. Well, some some might maybe look at this text that we just read and say, hey, uh, this was written like 2,000 years ago. Paul, Paul wasn't really as enlightened as we are in our understanding of human sexuality. I mean, we have gone through more education. We've had more enlightenment. Like, he was probably just writing things his culture would have been on board with. And, and, and here's where we need to really understand what the, the sexual practices of the first century world were like. I think it would be helpful to us. Because Paul is writing this, and he knows Not only that this probably isn't going to be popular 2,000 years in the future in in a land called America, but this is actually not going to be popular as he writes it. Right as it is received, he's not going to make a lot of friends with this. First century Rome, it was, is is a very, I mean, I'll tell you, this week it was a bit disturbing, all right? I'm still kind of coming out of it. I don't recommend everyone dive into that, all right? First century Rome was way darker and more depraved than anything we are living in right now. You think, you think just from a different subject, you think of the gladiator games, right? I mean, here in this list of sins, we get to ruthless, right? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, we, we like to sit around and watch football. Like, they like to sit around and watch people get torn to pieces, Right? There was a darkness and a depravity there. <clears throat> but first century Rome, not only with gladiator games, things like that, had spiraled away into darkness from Genesis chapter 2 and what we see a biblical definition of marriage being. We know from history that 14 of the 15 emperors of Rome did in fact practice homosexuality. <clears throat> Paul's not making any friends with the governmental leaders by writing this. Same-sex marriage was legally recognized in Rome. Pornographic images could be found on common Roman household pottery, water pitches, water pitchers, right? They just have these grotesque images of sexual immorality. Nero, one of the, the emperors, had taken a boy and attempted to transition him in a very barbaric way and made him his, quote, wife. So let's not think... Or, or really kind of waste our mental and emotional energy thinking we are in some sort of unique situation. When we remove the Creator from our understanding of sexuality, then darkness and depravity does result. This is what happens, right? If, if I get to define and decide how I pursue sexual pleasure, then I've essentially tried to take God's job, and that never ends well. 
it, it, it never just by chance turns out great. It always spirals into more and more darkness. But listen, the, the ultimate sin of the Roman Empire was not that they legalized same-sex marriage. The ultimate sin was that they had rejected God. <clears throat> the emperors wanted his job. People worshipped the emperor. People worshipped the creation instead of the creator. And when creation rejects the creator, a, a spiral into darkness and depravity always occurs, all the while people thinking they are becoming more enlightened and that they've moved past their need for God. And listen, this, this is how life plays out. When you are confused about who the creator is, you will be confused about everything else in life. You will be confused about marriage. You will be confused about gender. You will be confused about what will ultimately lead to lasting joy and flourishing in life. And so, church, our, our response should, should not to be getting so angry and outraged and shocked and surprised. We need to see the confusion and the chaos that surrounds us and see it with some compassion. See it as being a fallout from being confused about God and who he is and what he has done. This is all a result of creation trying to take our Creator's job and redesign and redefine what has already been designed and defined. Now, there are some denominations and Christians out there uh, who do affirm practicing homosexuality. And I've, I've tried this week. Again, I... I I do have a heart to, to see other people's perspectives and to understand how they are interpreting different passages of Scripture and things like that. I've, I've tried to understand their argument a bit more. Uh, one of their arguments is that Romans 1 is, is really only condemning abusive sexual relationships or, or pedophilia, not necessarily two men or two women in a, uh, in a committed marriage relationship. But I'm not... I'm not convinced of that argument here because Paul is very intentional to take his line of argument outside of just Roman culture and back to the created order of things. In verse 26, when he references those things that are contrary to nature, he is pointing people back to Genesis. Right? And it is all throughout the creation account that we see opposites complementing one another, right? We see the heavens and the earth. We see the light and the darkness. We see the land and the sea. We see the evening and the morning, all culminating with the pinnacle of his creation, human beings created in the image of God, and he creates them distinctly male and female. And God brings them together, distinctly a male and a female in marriage, to then go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so 
Paul is not stuck in his cultural moment. Paul is taking the Roman church and us back to creation and letting God set the definition and design, right? Letting the creator give his design for our sexual activities regardless of our sexual preferences. I also do realize that to some, sexual preferences is even a hurtful phrase. And most people recently have preferred the term sexual orientation. And so I think we at least need to be mindful of this so we can speak graciously to people. Uh, the, The thought behind that is that sexual preferences implies that there is a choice. And sexual orientation implies that there is no choice. And listen, to some degree that's true. Because when you reject God as God, if you reject to be ruled by Him, we do see here in Romans 1 that you are then ruled by your passions and desires. I mean, you... You, you, this is, this is the, just the sad, sad thing. You thought you were getting sexual freedom apart from God, but instead you ended up in sexual slavery, right? And so the lie that we hear predominantly in our culture is that, is that your sexual preferences define who you are and you must be controlled and ruled by them. There is no other option for you. And that is not true. The good news is that your creator defines you. And you are so much more than your sexual desires. I mean, we dehumanize people so much when we identify them by their desires. We are so much more than that. You are an image bearer of God, made to reflect the glory and the character of God to his creation. You were created as a male and female to be God's representative rulers on earth. You have infinite value, dignity, and worth, all because of who God says you are. And so don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for anything else. Less, you don't have to be a slave to your desires. The enemy would would love for you to believe that lie, that you are just a slave to your desires. And this this is a lie we believe regardless of what your desires are, right? We, We believe this lie. You will always be a slave to your lusts. You will always be a slave to pornography. You will always be a slave to adultery committed with the body or with the mind. You have no choice. You will do this. Your passions will rule you, right? Isn't this the the lie that we tell ourselves and believe that we will just always be enslaved to these things? We will always be ruled by these things. But that's not true. And there was hope for those Christians living in Rome just like there is hope for us. We'll see later in Romans 6, 17 that Paul will say, But thanks be to God that you, who once, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. There's hope for us who have been enslaved by our desires. And so because of the gospel church, There's not one sexual sin or aspect of sexual brokenness 
that is not welcome here. That we can walk alongside one another with. That we can bring into the light together. That we can take to Christ and turn from together. Romans 1 is not a condemnation of just one particular sexual sin. It is a declaration of how the rejection of God has led to all sorts of darkness and brokenness, and all must be brought to Christ and surrendered to Him. All our passions and desires must be brought to Christ and given to Him. And so let's, let's be very real here. If, if, if you have had same-sex attraction... Listen, you are, you are welcome here. And, and you can bring that to your pastors and your city group leaders. We can talk about that with you. We can pray about that with you, right? If you are addicted to pornography right now, you can bring that into the light. We, we, can, we can handle that together, right? We can take that to Christ. There aren't certain sins here that, that are just off limits and we can't talk about, right? If you are being ruled by any desire besides a desire for Christ, we need to bring that into the light together. And church, what a sad thing it is to to reject God and then be ruled by our desires instead of being ruled by Him. We thought we could take God's job and that would give us more freedom, but it turned out we were ruled by our desires instead. But is that all that we are ruled by when we reject God? No, look back at Romans 1, verse 28. There's more that we are ruled by when we reject God. Romans 1, 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They did not see fit, right, to acknowledge God. They did not see fit. They hadn't honored Him or given thanks to Him as we saw before. And therefore, God gave them up to a debased mind, meaning a a worthless mind, a mind that is not fit to think clearly. And so if you've ever looked around and thought people have lost their minds, that's not, a, that's not a new thing. That's not a new concept, right? People were saying it 2,000 years ago as well. All right? It should not come to us as a shock or a surprise, right? There's, there's a lot of secondary factors that you could point to that has brought some of the confusion and chaos we are living in, but ultimately it has come from the wrath of God. For when people think that God is worthless, he gives them over to minds that are now worthless. And why does he do this? Why not just save all his wrath for later? Well, I don't don't know all the reasons why God does what he does. But I, I believe he partly does this because of his grace and his love. You see, because by experiencing some of his wrath now, he is graciously showing creation just how dark and depraved life is without him. And do we really want that for eternity? It's gracious of him to show some of his wrath right now, 
right? God and his grace allows some prodigals to get to the point of eating out of a pig's trough so that they will come to their senses and see the need for their father, right? Present wrath is certainly him being gracious and loving to us. And look what happens then when our thinking is worthless, right? Look, look what it says in Romans uh, 29, right? When our thinking is worthless, we become filled and controlled by all sorts of things. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. All right, so this is, this is again describing again people who have rejected God. God's given them over to sinful passions and worthless thinking. And Paul says that those under the wrath of God in this way are, verse 29, filled with all these things. Now, to clarify, this is not exactly true of a believer, all right? Because this word filled is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians when he describes believers as being filled with the Spirit. And don't think of being filled by the Spirit as just a a pitcher of, of water, you know, just filling up a glass. Think of it more as like a hand filling a glove. Right? Many of you have been out in the snow recently playing, right? When a, when a hand fills the glove, now the hand controls and moves and works the glove. Right? This is a picture of what it means to be filled by the Spirit as believers are to be, right? Uh, so to be filled by the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. That The Spirit now guides how we live and move and work. And in the same way, someone who is under the wrath of God is filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They are controlled by these things. They are slaves to these things. If they are not ruled by God, they will be ruled by these things. And if you are not in Christ, this this is you this morning. Some of these things that we'll continue to read are, are controlling you and ruling you this morning. And my prayer for you is that Christ would, would be your redeemer this morning. That he'd rescue you from the slavery you've been living in. But for those of us who are believers, listen, if you are ruled by Christ, then these things no longer control you. However, some of these things might very much still be present in your life. And I think we can see ourselves in this list to some degree or another. Look with me at verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Back to haters of God. You know, people that reject God. The the friends that I've had that have been adamant about rejecting God when you get to the heart of it, it's not ultimately that they don't think he's there. They just hate him. It's, I'm not sure I've seen it play out too much where someone could just be completely neutral about the idea of God. So don't be surprised when people hate God or they hate his people. When people reject God, 
This is where it leads. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Shows you just how, how serious the Lord thinks of children being obedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They applaud them. They celebrate them. And when the applause gets cranked up, it drowns out that person's conscience that God has graciously given them. And it's a sad thing to be filled and controlled and ruled by these things, all the while thinking you've become enlightened. And then for the believer, what, what joy we miss out on as believers by still giving these things a seat at the tables of our hearts and minds. Envy. Envy is a sinful desire that wants what someone else has. But it's deeper than that. It's more than just that jealousy of wanting what someone else has. Uh, but when you are envious, you actually resent the other person for having what you want. And so people, let's maybe think of a, of a married couple, people in a marriage, right? They could, they could look at a, at a healthy marriage, you know, another couple, and be inspired by that and go to God and, and ask for his help to develop what they see in others. But an envious couple, no, an envious couple isn't inspired what, by what other people have. They resent those people for having it. It's not just jealousy. It's a deeper, it's a, it's a bitterness that sinks down deep into your heart. A grudge then settles into your heart. It settles in the heart of an envious person. It starts to eat them from the inside out. Right? It, it, it controls those who are walking in darkness, but it steals a lot of joy of those who are walking with Christ. And Proverbs 14, 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You can't always see bones rotting at first. It's not on the surface. But eventually you see it. And someone who has envy, it's destroying them from the inside out. Church, if, if we are ruled by Christ, what place should envy have in our life? Who are we to resent what others have if God has given us himself? Isn't God enough for us? Or are we still striving for God's job? Still upset that, that other people, maybe God has given them things he didn't give us. And as I was trying to prayerfully write this sermon, I honestly could not get past this sin of envy. I, I believe this is a, a, an issue for us as a church. I believe it's an underlying issue in a lot of people's hearts here in this church. Now we who are in Christ, we are not filled and controlled by envy. We are no longer under the wrath of God. But envy is present here. 
And I don't know exactly where it all is, but my prayer is that the Spirit of God would, would root that out a little bit this morning. That He would expose in us where we might have some envious hearts. Resenting others for what God has given them. Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18 says, Let not your heart envy sinners but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. The fear of the Lord is not the same as being afraid of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having a, a reverent awe of Him, being in reverent awe of Him. It's having an awareness of His presence. It's having a, an awareness of your dependence on Him. It's a thankfulness for all that He has done, right? The fear of the Lord is really the, the opposite of removing God from the equation, right? It's instead acknowledging God first and foremost in every aspect of your life as the Creator, Right? He's the one who designs and defines things. Whether it's your marriage or your singleness, whether it's your parenting or your work or your politics or your interactions with your neighbors, whether it's how you deal with your money or your emotions or your thought life or your leisure or your desires, how you spend your time. Listen, if you remove God from the equation and try to take his job, darkness, depravity, confusion, and chaos will come upon all those areas of your life. Envy, strife, deceit, gossip, foolish, foolishness, faithlessness, pride will rise up in your heart in those things. I mean, we as the people of God, we, we're envious of how God has gifted others. And they're envious of how God has gifted us. And God's like, wait a minute, I'm the creator. I designed it that way. It's called the church. But when we try to take God's job, we say, no, I don't, I don't like that design, God. I want to be gifted this way and this way and this way. And we try to remove God out of the equation. We try to take his job. But listen, if God is acknowledged first, if you come under his rule and design in those things first, then life flourishes. Life flourishes. But when we reject God, and when we try to be God, we spiral into darkness and depravity. And you can, you can look through this list of 21 sins here. I've, I've, I, I tried to study them. I, I don't think Paul's big point is necessarily for us to break down each and every one and differentiate between them all, as there is some overlap here in the meaning of some of these words. But I think Paul's overall point here is he is painting this picture of the darkness that rejecting God leads us into. Right? Life gets really dark and depraved when God is not a part of the equation. Right? It's not as if God is, is rejected and sometimes it turns into a perfect utopian society. Like that, that doesn't sometimes happen, right? If God is rejected, darkness and depravity result. When people reject God, it's because they want his job and he gives them over to be ruled by their desires and their worthless thinking and they spiral into more darkness and depravity. 
And let me remind you again, this is why the gospel is so necessary, church. For it is in the gospel that we hear the news that creation has not been left to itself to continue in this spiral into darkness. Creation is not a closed system that is just going to wear down. In the gospel, we hear the news that the creator entered into his creation to save it. And he did a great work. And this is the, the power of God that, that reverses everything that we've seen in the fallen world. And it's, it's the power of God to create now life flourishing and to create new creations and to restore and redeem his world, right? But we, he, our creator is so great, he entered into creation to save it. But we'll forget how great he is if we don't know Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, we learn what kind of people God came to save. He did not come to save a people who were pretty good on their own, but needed a little bit of help. He came to save a people living in darkness, who, as verse 32 says, were deserving of death. Jesus came to save a people who, left to their own, would have utterly destroyed themselves through being ruled by our sinful desires and worthless thinking. He came to save a people who, by trying to take his job, had made some horrible exchanges. By us trying to take God's job, we exchanged light for darkness. We exchanged wisdom for foolishness. Glory of God for the depravity of man. Honor for dishonor. Truth for lies. Thankful hearts for envious hearts. And what I've just described, all those exchanges, that was the state of all of us before we came to Christ. It was a very grim picture, if left to ourselves, church. But the good news of the gospel says, even though creation tried to cut the creator out of the equation, the creator entered into his creation to rescue creation from darkness. You see, the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled. We remind one another of it every Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see, church, the light of the world has come in the God-man Jesus Christ. And he says, I know you've made some bad exchanges but you give me your slavery and I'll give you freedom. You give me your curse and I'll give you my blessing. He says, give me death and I'll give you life. He says, I'll take wrath and I'll give you favor. He says, give me your anxiety and I'll give you faith. He says, give me your lies and I'll give you truth. He says, give, you, give me your envy and I will give you myself. What a savior we have. What a creator we have. Church, when God is removed from the equation, darkness inevitably follows. But when God is acknowledged, when the fear of the Lord returns, our awareness of his presence and our dependence upon him, when he is brought back as the designer and definer of every aspect of our life, life starts to flourish again. 
And it has to start in here. You, you can't take this and just think about someone else really needs to hear this today. It, it has to start in here. It has to start with the church. And so may we, as the church, stop trying to take his job and instead recognize him in all areas of our lives. He is the creator. He's the designer and the definer of all things. We are his creation. May we honor God as God and give thanks to him in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And may we point people who are living in darkness back to the light of the world who is truly worthy of our worship, church. Let's pray.